Welcome to Supercharge, the Change and Comms podcast. While for some, the autumn budget has meant outgoings have gone up in the southwest of England, the temperature has definitely dropped. I'm Chris Bradley, and my co-host in the warmer climes of Barcelona is Pete Hodges. Hi, Pete. Hi. This week, we're joined by Rich Stern. Pete, I really think we need to start introducing some applause and sound effects. Anyway, hi, Rich. Welcome to the show. Why don't you kick us off by telling us a bit more about yourself and what you're here to talk about today? Sure thing. And uh, very pleased to be here. Thanks for inviting me on, chaps. Uh, so I am a, I have a sort of multi-layered career, but um, a good substantive part of it was working in regulatory change in UK financial services. So um, I've come on today to talk about the kind of regulatory change process, particularly with the financial services bent, but uh, but talking about the, the challenges kind of around that. Outside of, of that work, most recently, I spent the last couple of years working in venture capital, investing in startups and kind of UK tech companies and trying to find the next big thing. Um, and back in the day, um, I was a student president at Exeter and took over from Pete, who was uh, sad the, the previous year. Um, so we go go back a decent way. Something that Rich reminded me of, actually, that I'd completely forgotten is one, one of the ways in which we've met was that I helped uh, in 2006 Rich to set his Facebook profile up which he reminded me of so uh <laughs> I, and I, might need, I might need your help deleting it at some point <laughs> well yeah i guess we've kind of come full circle then I, yeah. I hope it was a good good service I provided. you still have the same account rich i do but i have changed the password it's no longer pete hodges is cool anyway um so the first question for you rich um i mean in my humble opinion regulatory change is something that's important but kind of dry um and i I'm making a massive assumption there about finance and regulatory change, but how, how do you keep it interesting? I mean, it's it's something that's important and you need people to engage with it. So how do you keep it spicy? Well, I think I think there's two strands to that question. The first one is, and, and I guess it comes back to, to some of the kind of bits of change you've talked about on your podcast so far, is really what's driving the change and what's the need to make the change, what, what's behind it. And I think we've talked quite a lot or you've talked a lot about the processes and tools you, you use during change, possibly a little bit less about, you know, why are we changing in the first place and, and what's making that happen. And with regulatory change, which, you know, is it applies in other sectors as well, because anywhere you've got a law that has changed or a rule that has changed, you're going to need to do something about it. Um, the big driver is the law and the the kind of penalties that you that you see against it. And you know, thinking back to some of the projects I've worked on, I worked on a, a money laundering uh, regulatory change project for a big bank. I mean, this was a good 10 years ago. Um, and they had, and this is in the public domain now, they had been found to be money laundering for the Mexican drug cartels. And basically the, um, the cartels would take money over the border from Mexico to branches in the Southern United States and then kind of deposit them in the various branches in cash. But as the amount of cash increased, the banks had to install larger and larger night safes to swallow the briefcases of money that, that were put in. Um, and that's got some pretty serious consequences. And, you know, there's a pretty serious thing that, that's driving that. So for that kind of change, the, the law is is a thing that just gives it the motivation it needs. Mexican I think, cartels hmm. is pretty spicy, to be fair. So Yeah, indeed, indeed. <laughs> I mean, maybe it's less on the kind of let's be fun and engaging. And here's a post-it diagram of how this change will make your life better. And, you know, sort of here's an image of um, whatever the cartels do. That That's a different kind of driver. Well, that's then, interesting, though, Rich, hmm. isn't it? Because right, when I was, 
I, I walked into a, a meeting once at an organization on the same thing, money laundering. It's a big problem in the finance industry, isn't it? And um, the first thing that appeared in this presentation is one of my first days and I sat there. Uh, they were doing a bit of engagement work around um, the technology teams about you know, how, you know, how we're going to have to improve certain aspects of the tech to you know, better identify when these things are happening. And the first image that popped up on this PowerPoint presentation um, was a tank firing. And I thought, this is really weird. Why are you using that? What's the, what's the metaphor? Where, where are we going? with it and it was just to show that actually the money laundering that although in small parts in in actually amounts to big parts which is used to buy weapons uh, uh other uh, unsavory items across the world and you would never notice it so by just someone constantly posit depositing small amounts or doing something small can actually lead into something quite catastrophic and, uh it, what, what have you seen in where you were working in that space that they used to engage people or, or bring that to life for someone because you're right just people walking across the border with a bunch of money sticking it in a bank it's got a massive yeah. consequence hasn't it so uh, how do you bring that to life without actually scaring people <laughs> well definitely so i think that comes on to the kind of second second part i would say to, to the original question which is uh, there is an inherent professionalism with people in finance and a fair chunk of the stuff that the team's dealing with is is pretty dry anyway so it, it's almost uh, in fact I'd go more than almost. It is. It's necessary that it is part of the job. That if you are one of the many financial services workers working in the UK or any similarly regulated market, then it's it. It definitely these days. I mean, maybe 10, 15 years ago, there was a bit more pushback against it. But it, it's an essential part of your job to be engaged with regulatory change. And if people are pushing back or struggling with that, then they're probably not suited for for the roles that they're in. Um, so I guess the the change journey I've been on in the last 10 years when started off working post just around the end of the financial crisis to now, there's a lot more acceptance and awareness of the sorts of changes that have been made. And people have been, I mean, maybe it's consultants have sort of broken them over the last 10 years, but uh, they're much more able to, to receive the change and kind of work with it than, than perhaps in previous times. So what are the kind of big topics or things of the moment in finance and regulation that, that are things to know? So I've been talking to colleagues about it, and currently there's a lot of chat around consumer duty, which is the new regime that the FCA is is kind of sorry the Financial Conduct Authority, the, the FCA, is uh, is working on, and that is an iteration of a regime that I worked very closely on for a couple of years, which is the Conduct Risk Group. And the centre of that is how you treat your customers fairly, make fair decisions, and do everything in a way that is in the best interest of the customer. And in each iteration of this, they increase the onus on organization, make the right decision for the consumer and, and evidence they're making the right decision. So consumer duty is sort of one of the big, the big ones, I think, in, in UK financial services. The second big one, which, I mean, there's still loads of work going on, but, but maybe it's a bit calmer than it was, is, is Brexit and the implications of that. I mean, that not least because it was a, a broadly unexpected change. I mean, I think, you know, in 2016, the general consensus was the referendum would have been pro-European rather than the, the 52-48 the other way. And as a result, there was quite a lot of scrabbling to account for that. And um, the need to run like multiple change programs simultaneously was a, was a big driver of that. That actually leads to my next question, um, which I'm again making an assumption, but it's it's important to be clear about what you're delivering. I, I think in in change, but I imagine especially so so with um, regulatory change. So how how do you minimise ambiguity? 
when you're dealing with important financial change? I think it's a good segue from Brexit, as that's a great example of a, a very ambiguous situation that at times was you know bonkers with the level of ambiguity, and you had organisations running multiple change programmes simultaneously, each to achieve a different outcome based on what Brexit we we would have, whether it would be a, a closer alignment or a, or a bigger break. Um, alongside that, though, there is always a degree of ambiguity with these these types of change programmes because the process itself involves looking at the law or the statement or the, the kind of the paper or the consultation, whatever the kind of the root source of the regulation is, digging into that and then translating that into a framework or a set of rules for the organisation themselves. And every time, every organisation that's going to be a little bit different because organisations are different. So how the rules will apply and, and how they get um, sort of put into practice will, will be different per organisation. Because of that process, there is a sort of fixed amount of ambiguity that you can never be sure that you are entirely meeting what the what the requirements are setting out because the requirements have to apply to all organisations. You're making them specifically to yours. So. How do you manage that? I mean, firstly, it's it's about being clear and open with kind of all parties of the process you're on and showing them that journey from the regulation to the framework and to the rules. Secondly, it's about heavily involving the client and the client teams, and, and particularly here that the legal team is, is super important because within financial services organisations, they are generally the arbiter of the, the kind of decisions and interpretation that the, the board you know, is willing to make about, about how we apply that sort of thing. And if you're taking a rule and making it something different, you kind of want legal to, um, to, to give you the thumbs up. And they will do that internally, but also bring in external counsel and external information. And then a, a sort of third area is, is the compliance team, which sometimes sits as part of legal, um, but they're often a fixed team within the organisation whose job is to horizon scan to see what regulatory changes are coming and then, you know, act as an audit and a, and a point and a line in the sand for, for the work that you're doing. And, and quite often the regulatory change work is for a client within the compliance team as, as their role is to sort of monitor and keep on top of it. But you're coming in as a team to put something new in for them. So do you find... Um... I, I, I'm only going based on watching the news recently as a good example here, that you could set your sail up to, to take you to one port and that's the direction that you're heading. And that's regardless of whether that's what the organisation wants to do, but that is you know, the, the, the set of the sails, that's where we got to go. That's what we've been told, that's the rules. And then halfway down you know, that, that canal, something changes, the government changed their mind or a, a former part of government minister has, and therefore that, that, that set of sales you had is not quite right again and you've had to jump another way. Suddenly the ambiguity starts to ramp up. You're delivering and working towards that change and there's another step change by whatever that decision is. It might only be small, but it's significant enough. Does that happen often in terms of dealing with regulatory change? Just based on the stuff we see, just looking at the budgets recently, right? There's some enough step changes in those two you know, the, the, the faux mini budget to the autumn statement, right? How, how do you respond to that? Because you talk about all those different key stakeholders and you're jumping around with like legal, you're jumping around, there's probably procurement issues in there. There's clearly financial budgeting that's going to impact your organisation. The end users are going to be the, the you know, or, or your customer, your bottom line basically is going to get impacted at some way. How do you respond to that in an organisation? It's a really good question. I think in part, when at least in the UK regime, and we may not even come into it in, the, in this podcast, I'm happy to come back again, but you've got like international regimes where there's, there's a fair bit more of kind of chop and change. And if you're a global organisation trying to comply with, you know, 20 different regimes simultaneously, then, 
you know, this is a full time job for a team in itself. But taking a um, kind of UK answer, when the regulations hit the statute book, they generally tend to be relatively static after that point. Um, I mean, Brexit is a whole different ball game in terms of we saw, but um, the challenge that you're describing is is in the kind of consultation anticipation of of how we get to to the laws and the statute book. But simultaneous to that, a fair chunk of the the kind of rules that people have to follow aren't actually you know on the statute book. They're they're documents and papers that, that are published by by the SCA or or the PRA. So so yes, there is that sort of constantly underlying change that, that's happening and it does mean that a lot of time is spent on stakeholder management on interpretation on coming up with alternative plans i mean i did i do have a theory that uh, financial services regulatory change is actually driving a significant amount of the uk's gdp because you know if you want all the financial services companies to employ 100 consultants each and put money in the in the pocket of the middle class in London, then, you know, change the law and they're going to have to rope in some more consultants to do this sort of work. And, and the final thing I'd say on that is to your recent government change point, Chris, uh, Liz Truss's team, and I won't say a bad thing about a fellow Norwich fan, um, but their, their period in charge was pretty awful. Um, but one of the things they were proposing was merging the FCA and the PRA, which is a pretty you know fundamental change to come in. And the amount of, sort of stuff they were chucking out in that period of of in charge, which is only six weeks, I mean that does cause you know a lot of instability. I think the only saving grace is it was kind of over so quickly that that no one, aside from the markets, which obviously reacted extensively, but in terms of organisational structure, they couldn't change a great deal. You think that was one of those things where everyone was like, mm, okay, yeah, we'll just wait and see whether this actually comes to fruition or not. Yeah, I mean, people were talking about it and kind of planning towards it, but there's not enough time to kick off a, a kind of major just as a result of that. And, you know, I think we were all sort of too busy checking our mortgage rates at that time to really uh, to really focus. Uh, I, have a, I have a sub-theory that uh, the, the, the purpose of the mini-budget was to boost growth, but almost the... Um, they, they did the opposite just by distracting us with political turmoil. Like if they uh, stopped chopping and changing all the time, then maybe we could all get off Twitter and get back to our day jobs. I might not be on Twitter for long anyway, so <laughs> I mean, problem there. That, that's, that's the second reference to Twitter. Um, and I don't know where to start with Twitter or Norwich. Just I don't know where to go next with this. <laughs> um, I, I, saw, I saw on Twitter this morning, they're predicting that Twitter will be um we'll be we'll be crashing on monday it's fascinating isn't it mm. I, so I, I don't know when this podcast is going out but but here's like rich's prediction that the twitter will have crashed by wednesday next yeah week. might not have to worry about that one i mean i'd seen um oh, what was that the email that elon musk sent um yeah, saying either you work extremely hardcore 80 hours a week or, or three months severance just before christmas have you used that on your change programs pete um, you know, going into the pandemic, either you're on teams or you're out on the street. Yeah. <laughs> this is an extremely hardcore change or or you're out. Um, it's not an approach I would use. I think actually it is interesting though. I mean, I don't know, you've been in, in the VC world and I, it looks to me like the approach that he's taking is, is um, one as if he's in a startup environment and, and he's trying to imply a, a, a kind of a startup yeah, I th- I think mindset this is, is an to a mature company. Yeah. I think it's it's unusual that I mean possibly unique that you see such a big company being taken apart so quickly by by an individual that that doesn't really chime with the kind of the, the startup growth side. Um, and and I think 
looking through the startup lens, quite a lot of the changes that you get in early stage companies are about significant product changes. So, you know, you're building, um, you, you know, Slack, the, the message workspace. Um, that's a great example. So they actually were building yeah. like a Dungeons and Dragons style computer game, a team of engines, and that's what they were trying to do. And then they built this messaging service to communicate about how they were going to build the Dungeons and Dragons game. But a couple of years later, or a couple of years into the program, they realized the game was rubbish, but the messaging service was decent. So they pivoted the whole company and then went off and built this kind of multi-million dollar messaging system. Um, but that's that's a product change. Where Twitter is at the moment, I'm not sure at least I haven't seen anything about significant iterations to the product or significant changes that would make it different to, or to what it currently is. He said, actually, that he wants, it's quite interesting, um, so he wants to stop Twitter being a product-led organisation and, and entirely allow it to be engineering-led. Uh, assuming everything I've read is correct, and I have, I have no idea whether or not it is, but uh, so they want it to be engineer-led, and you're, the metric for whether or not you're doing a good job is essentially how much code you've written. I mean, I, I would imagine that there is a plan somewhere in all of this, that it's not just an approach just to spend £45 billion and rip up something to have a bit of fun with i just imagine there has to be a plan it comes almost back to going back to what we were talking about about stakeholder management that the stakeholders in this case are us users um and it's not been done particularly well i would argue uh the fact that we're sitting here speculating about what the future is of something that we use is, is a suggestion that we don't actually know and but all we are seeing is something that we do know and, and use being essentially um changed for a different purpose perhaps i don't know I class myself at the moment as a, a Twitter disaster tourist, uh, and it doesn't surprise me that the um, the the like usage of Twitter has gone through the roof because I think everybody yeah. is just you know when's it going to fall over or what's going to happen? Maybe that is actually an interesting point. I, I don't know, but that if you that when you have this this level of radical change and there is some ambiguity in there, no one's really sure where it's going. Um, you certainly drive interest in what the outcome might be. From the outside. <laughs> Is this the, the Pete Hodges car crash theory of change? You know, <laughs> set a building on set a building on fire and everyone will come and look at it. See what happens. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. We'll come back in a few weeks. I mean, yeah, I think we've we've uh, as we were saying earlier, we've had enough of that in the UK government recently to see how that can end up. So um perhaps not a recommended theory. Um just to like drag us back on topic um slightly, I wondered, Rich, you've got Many interesting stories. I think. I mean, we started off with the cartels, so maybe we can go from there. But um, what approaches to to change and, and comms have you seen work well in your experience over the years? So within and and, and thinking about the kind of regulatory change driven projects that I've been on, a lot of them do have relatively juicy stories behind them. I mean, if we think about think about conduct risk and and the treating your customer fairly and and that side of the regime change that occurred. I mean, that was heavily driven by the poor treatment of consumers over the past 30 years by the UK banking industry. And we see, and maybe slightly less these days, but there was a period when you were seeing a story in the news almost every day about how poor decisions have been made. And, and the biggest one that you know would have hit your spam inboxes multiple times a day is, is PPI. And I actually spent a year um, helping Lloyd's Bank structure their PPI repayment team. So they were paying out billions of pounds a year and getting hundreds of thousands of complaints through. 
And my role was to work out how many claims handlers they needed through the various stages of the process to, to pay these pay these claims. It's about 8,000 people based around based around the UK. So with, with something like that, that, that kind of program, um, the it, it's a big and complicated one, and you need big teams to so communicate the change effectively. So with 8,000 claims handlers of varying seniority and various people affected through the bank, there's a lot of people to engage. So that's why these projects need to be big and have big teams. So you've got a communications team, you've got a training team, you've got you know the, the team doing the process improvement, you've got my team kind of doing the strategy or example. So that's one answer to your question, which is go big and do it properly. Make sure you're putting the time, you're putting the effort, and you're investing. I think the the second area that that is important and, and drives success is, is tone from the top and that as a term is sort of finding itself into the the regulation as well so senior managers regime and, and things like that where the SCA is starting to specify responsibilities in organizations it's important that those senior managers are I mean hopefully bought in but at least on message with what needs to be done and they need to be, be aware of it and I was talking about it earlier, but I think gone are the days where a senior leader in financial services can ignore regulation. They have to know what's going to be on, on board with that. And that tone from the top is so important because if you're a new person in the in the financial sales world and you're not getting that message from your leaders, then from the very start, you're you know potentially going to make decisions that are going to have A, negative outcomes on the customer and B, result in, in fines for the bank. So, so that's a kind of important second element. I think that the third element is the way that you then explain it. And it's maybe a theme that we've talked about is how dry some of this stuff can be and finding the right balance between what is many pages of text and you know what is actually quite a jolly, engaging uh, presentation and, and explanation. And that's super important. I spent a year or so doing GDPR change for, for a couple of financial services organizations. And that, because that was slightly outside the wheelhouse of... Um, financial services and you kind of have to get people in the data mindset before you can kind of talk about the regulatory element to it uh that does involve a lot of i think frivolity really just to just to keep it going and i worked with a great change team we sort of traveled around europe training the various teams of these clients on what needs to be done and really getting people engaged in that side of things um so i think those are probably sort of three approaches that, that i've seen and in reality it is probably a combination of all of if you can make gdpr interesting then you're on to a winner i think <laughs> yeah with um the, the funny thing about gdpr was the the deadline which i think was 28th of may 2018 was a really good driver for change because right up until that deadline you could say right, I need you to do this because it's six weeks to the deadline, it's four weeks to the deadline, it's two weeks to the deadline. But I remember, and, th and then the day of the deadline was a funny one, but then the day after the deadline, it was a very odd place to be because that big incentive you'd been pushing had gone. But actually, yes, the regulation had gone live, but the ICO was only really getting up and running at that point. There wasn't any like case law and the idea that you'd see any enforcement action. I mean, that was going to be two years off at best. And so suddenly your sort of biggest driver for change has just disappeared in a flash of smoke. And maybe you've only done 65% of the liberals you needed to do. And those last 35% were just grim, just trying to push people over the line on these things. I mean, that was that was a hard graft. Uh, that was our graph time. And, you know, I took a nine-month sabbatical after that. So um, <laughs> reading that, what you meant. GDPR meant you needed nine months off Wales. So, I mean, it was, a, it was a change that impacted a lot of people, wasn't it? Chris, are there any other questions that you've got? 
So we're probably well over the time it would take to drink a cup of tea, which was originally what we set out to do. I'm I'm halfway through mine, but it is a very big cup. <laughs> uh, and I, I have had my my Costa Toblerone latte this morning, which was rather nice. A Toblerone latte. Yeah, yeah. Is that is that the only way to make the Costa coffee bearable? Is by pouring sugar and flavour. Well, I mean that would be one thing. The, the 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 other way to drive me to it was to give me seventy five p off it in my co op app. That helped. <laughs> fair, fair. Always looking for a bargain. Um, do a World Cup prediction, Pete. Then, God, you can cut all that noise out. Of the but my prediction, which will surprise no one that knows me, is uh, that Uruguay will get to the semi final. Who, who have they got these got days? This, this Diego Fort. Paul Anis, unfortunately, well beyond his prime. Um, but no, they've got a front three, Suarez, Cavani and um, uh, Nunes, the, the, oh, yeah. the Liverpool player. Uh, and their, their midfield's pretty good at the moment. Um, they've got Ben Tanker and the, uh, Valverde, the, um, the Madrid player. Um, so they're, they're pretty um, solid unit. But the thing with I'm Uruguay, you just never know when they're going to come out and fight you. So really interesting game, though. It should be, um, for anyone that knows so World Cup history, um, the game with Ghana in 2010, which I think was their last match together, was the one where Suarez um, batted the ball off the line in the in the 120th minute or so uh, for the penalty save. Um, so they meet again in this World Cup, and it's the last group stage game, so it could be quite spicy. And I guess it's Suarez's last uh, World Cup game as well, so maybe he'll go in angry mode again. Yeah, a lot for him to get his teeth into. So, Pete, your prediction is Uruguay to the quarters, is it? Semis, semis, semis. So, who's your prediction for a winner? I'm, if I can jump, I'm predicting Argentina to win. I'm a hopeless romantic, but I think Leo Messi, the greatest footballer to have graced the 21st century. Um, he's aging, but he's still got so many attributes. He's, you know, had a much more settled season in Paris this year. The Argentina team has been built around him. So I'm backing, backing Argentina to win it. Nah. It's a good show. It's a good show. I mean, the, the Brighton fan in me says Argentina because Alexi McAllister plays there. You play but I think one thing we've got in common is we've all gone South American. And I guess that's because of the, the heat and humidity over in Qatar will mean that it's going to be better suited to a country playing in the heat. Because our, our four to one on, I, I put seven, four to one on, four to one was the price I put on Brazil to win. So, yeah, my Brazilian friends, Brazilian friends are very confident. There's no, you know, I think England fans, we always have that kind of like, ah, oh, we'll go out of the group stage and if we do any better it's kind of a bonus but well if we get fans. out of this group <laughs> my, my other prediction is it's going to be pretty turgid i mean you know the the political situation around it puts a funny taste in the mouth the the bribery that led to it occurring also makes it feel odd and the timing and the lack of gap between uh, the, the premiership season ending and this starting and the injuries and everything like that. I don't have high hopes. And I guess most importantly, like I would struggle to do a barbecue and beers and, and have the football on. Well, we've, we've brought it back there uh, from a, another football tangent uh, to bribery, uh, which is related to what we started with, really. Yeah, and I think that's a it's it's a it's a good point because we've talked a lot about financial services, but actually the regulations and rules apply across all organisations. And and maybe Chris, to a question that I didn't answer earlier, is what comes next? It's it's the spreading out of this kind of regime change and rule change into a wider and wider network of organisations who you know need to be aware of these sorts of stuff. Um, I mean, if you take your you know ten person SME in a in a business park somewhere, they're probably not doing a whole lot on GDPR. 
and the, the kind of UK data regulation that followed it. But there's only more that they're going to need to do in the future. We should probably finish up, otherwise we'll carry on all day. And you've got a, an interview to get to, so mm. far more important yeah. than what we're doing. <laughs> I, I hope we've kind of warmed you up. I hope we're like a warm up act to the to the big event. So you've kind of got yourself an hour to go now and chill. Relax, yeah, and I've got a few. Latte. I've got a few days before this comes out when i'm still a respected voice have you got any questions for us i guess that's how we should finish <laughs> um so pete you don't drink tea is it all of the teas yeah i'm afraid i find it boring i've just got this massive stone of water um, but water's less boring than tea i was gonna say how can you go and say i don't drink tea and i know you don't drink any hot drinks so how can you say i don't drink hot drinks because they're boring but don't worry i've got a glass of water here folks <laughs> Okay, I do see the issue there. I mean, my preference would be to drink beer, but... Uh. <laughs> if you were, what's, what are Qatar? Are they four hours ahead or behind? They're ahead, aren't they? Ahead, yeah. So yeah, you're where you are. to lunch there, so you could have one of your four beers there. We should your... probably draw it to a close, otherwise we'll, we'll, we'll carry on the morning. Yeah, um, you've got, Pete's got to edit this down, so... Yeah. <laughs> Great to meet you, Rich. Thanks for joining us today, Rich. Uh, it's been really interesting to hear from you um, on all sorts of different topics that uh, I didn't think we were going to cover. So it's been really good to catch up as well. Uh, for anybody that wants to find out more, um, check us out on LinkedIn, Instagram, maybe Twitter. Don't know if it's still there. Um, Rich, Wednesday. any last words? Uh, no, great, great to see you guys. And I guess um, my last words would be uh, look busy. The FCA is coming. Thank you. Noted. Cheers, guys. See you later. Yeah. Bye-bye.